Hi, I'm Julie Ross. And I'm Gregory Abbey. And you're listening to the Parenting Horizons podcast. Julie is a longtime parent educator and counselor. And Greg is an actor, writer, and director, and more importantly, a parent just like you. Through conversations covering a range of different topics, challenges, and roadblocks, we hope to give you a few of Julie's tools that might just help make parenting a little bit easier. And look, nobody's perfect, and parenting is challenging to say the least. But with a few skills under our belts, we just might be able to be good enough parents and enjoy the journey and our children a little bit more in the process. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the Parenting Horizons podcast. Um, as always, I'm with Julie Ross. Julie, how are you feeling today? I'm doing great, Greg. How are you? I'm glad. I feel like you always say that, and I appreciate it, and it feels authentic. But you can say you're feeling terrible, but you are generally feeling okay? I'm generally feeling okay. <laughs> All right. All right. I didn't mean to doubt you. Um, <laughs> so yeah, so today, today's episode, we're going to talk about this isn't a topic we haven't covered in other areas here and there in the podcast, but we're going to talk about anxiety and depression in your kids, um, how it can present, and also how it to maybe deal with that, either with a professional or among yourselves, using something called CBT, uh, cognitive behavioral therapy, which I know a little bit about, but we're going to learn more about today. And we are we are lucky to have a guest with us today, Dr. Elizabeth. Cohen, who is a psychologist, an author, and a speaker. Elizabeth, thank you for joining us today. Thanks so much, Greg and Julie, for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Great. Um, before we jump into our conversation, can you talk a little bit about your history and how you you know, came to what you're doing today and, and what you do? Absolutely. So I'm a clinical psychologist. I run a group practice. Uh, we work with kids and adults, 10 and up helping them through anxiety, depression, relationship problems, using cognitive behavioral therapy, which we'll talk about more today. And, um, but I didn't know this, but I was an anxious kid who needed CBT. And I only realized once I was treating people, oh, that's what I had. So I come <laughs> through it honestly too. Great. Um, and so your main work today is in this, and do you see patients individually, but also run these groups? Is that what you said? We do individual therapy in my practice. Yeah, only individual now. I also I did write a book about going through divorce. So I help parents navigate the anxiety that comes from having two homes and co-parenting as well. It's another area I, I address with the cognitive behavioral therapy. Before we d d define what CBT is for parents who might not know, is someone who's been in practice for a while, can you, how do you in terms of anxiety and depression in teens, I mean, I have a teenager myself, two older kids, but just went through it. Do you feel like it's the same as it's been? Do you have you seen an uptick? I mean, obviously, people have talked about the pandemic. I don't know if that's true. What's your what's your take on that in terms of where we are now with it in teens? I think there's a huge uptick, sadly, Greg. Um, directly related to the pandemic. We're seeing a lot of kids in my practice, and I know research supports this too, around the 15, 16, 17-year-old air age, really having a lot of kind of diffuse anxiety um, and also experiences of school anxiety. So anxiety about going to school. 
and I have some some thoughts about it. One of the things, and we'll talk about what CBT does, but it helps teach resilience and helps teach um, kids how to practice tools of trying something, even if it's difficult. And a lot of where developmentally kids learn that is in the middle school years. You know, we all look back on middle school and think, oh my God, that was terrible. And of course it was terrible. And we learn these really important skills of how to push through difficult times. And many of those kids, those ages that I just mentioned, really miss that time because of the pandemic. And I'm, I'm really seeing that as them missing some tools to get through the difficulties that are appropriately developmental for that age of teenage. What, when you say diffuse anxiety, so obviously we had this crazy situation where kids missed at least a year and a half, if not two years of socializing. So especially like I'm sure it's high school to elementary, but, you know, related to middle school, what does diffuse anxiety mean? And for a child that missed all of that, how does that directly affect them that, you know, they develop perhaps anxiety or depression? So I'll start with the first part about the diffuse. I mean, one thing is that before the pandemic in our practice, we would see typically people that would probably fall into, I'd say, two main buckets, maybe three. Um, One would be a specific anxiety disorder. So they would have a phobia of something, for example. So that might be taking the subway, that might be riding elevators, that might be public speaking, raising your hand in class, it might be talking to someone in a party that you don't know, right? So that's an anxiety that a specific situation brings up an experience. And then the second bucket would be what we in lay people terms, we talk about perfectionism. In psychology, we refer to it as generalized anxiety disorder, kind of ruminating and thinking about the need to do things perfectly, worrying excessively, which can be correspond with some physical sensations. And then I would say a third bucket, but it really overlaps with worry is the de- is depression, which was this you know, chronic low mood, irritability very often in teens. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, increase, decrease in sleep, just not interested in things. And so we were seeing these buckets and to say that kids would kind of consistently have symptoms and then they come to us when things got worse. But now post the pandemic, and I, I don't know if Julie's seeing this too, what we see is kids who were not having problems before are presenting more with this, with all the buckets um, but a lot of the middle bucket and the depression and a little bit less of the specific anxieties. Julie, are you seeing that too? A hundred percent. Yeah, there's no question. And, you know, in, and I think in addition to the pandemic, there I also attribute it to them coming out of the pandemic to some kind of catastrophic world events. Um, so we've got wars and we've got, um, the environmental crisis and these are things that they, you know, they can't do anything about the political landscape, the political landscape, you know, and so they went from not being able to do anything about the pandemic and the knowledge that the adults in charge, right. Didn't know what to do about the pandemic as well. And now Mm -hmm. they're coming into yet another kind of environmental situation where, again, they don't know what to do about it. And the the adults don't seem to be very competent either. And I think kids rely on the adults to present a a calm, steady presence of, you know, we've we've got this handled. You're a kid. You don't have to Mm -hmm. worry about this, you know, And, and they don't have that is what I see. 
I think that's such a good point. And I, one of the things that, you know, is nobody's fault that th this is what we did. But when, when the pandemic happened, we all started talking about school, not going to school because school isn't safe. And Julie and I can tell you the minute anyone, he, a kiddo hears that something isn't safe, their nervous system just gets absolutely activated. And then we expected these kids to go back to school, mm -hmm. even though we had told them they're safe and they don't have the developmental capability to understand, well, you know, look at the charts and this is epidemiology. Right, right. And so I feel like since we brought that in, there is a sense, and I think you're totally right, Julie, that a lack of safety and then that the grownups were also so traumatized and triggered, including their teachers who are one of the most like impacted yes. who don't get really talked about. Yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting because that also feels kind of intellectual, this idea like, hey, it's safe now and you can come back and look at these charts. I mean, as you're talking and we'll get to what CBT is, but it seems like it can also be confusing. I'm I'm wondering how with anxiety and depression in a child like, you know, my wife is in private practice as well, and she works with a lot of teens. So I guess my question is, how do you start to figure out to pinpoint because it can be so many of these things? And some of them are amorphous It can and it can be a combination of things. And I don't know, how does that work? So let's say specifically in your practice, is it just a matter of what we talk about here all the time? Is it just a curiosity? It's a starting to just have a conversation because I can imagine I can imagine there must be times when the kid, the child doesn't know. Maybe. Absolutely. Well, one thing that's a great question. One thing that's been really fun, though, um, that I've been noticing is a lot more kids are asking their parents to find a therapist for them. So I think that there has, I think through social media um, therapy accounts, there's been a, a lot of destigmatization around it. And so I have found that and the kids, so if a kid or teenager, I prefer them the same, come in, we really start with whatever, you know, their they're bringing to us. So we might right. know that it's about this existential crisis that we went through or their parents' divorce or whatever. But if they think it's about, which all they, they always start with is like friends at school and who's not sitting with them at the lunch table, that's where we start. We start at whatever their entry point is because mm -hmm. what we really try to teach is tools to manage difficult situations that you can apply to lots of situations. So we don't have to be, I think it's really a misconception that we have to target the like original experience that started all of this. We really can kind of be at the edges and with teens and anyone who has teens is listening to this, you know, they're, you can't go head on with them. <laughs> you, gotta be, you gotta be in the car. <laughs> right, right. That's when they leave and be like, stop talking. I feel like my 10th grader. That's what we get a lot. Stop talking, please stop talking. Um, oh yeah. So there's a couple of, uh, there's a couple of different inroads that, that all makes sense. It, can you define what is CBT? Sure. And, and, and I guess why for you, because there's, and by the way, my wife's practice is packed. It was certainly coming out of the pandemic. Yeah. She's full. And I will say, you know, all of her, you know, uh, the people she works with and knows in the business and have practices are all full. So it definitely is something that's going on. So, so I guess, can you define CBT and why for you, that was a route to go towards, um, maybe, and, and do you do traditional talk therapy as just a part of that? So I guess define CBT and, and what led you to, to feel like that was the, the place you wanted to zone in on, the practice, I guess. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm sure your wife, Julie, we all have different ways of approaching um, helping guide people to um, 
live the life that they're really meant to live. And so some people um, are more formulaic. So cognitive behavioral therapy is one modality of many modalities. I'm of the belief that um, you use the modality that fits best, I think, for the therapist, really, (laughs) and for the client, you kind of need to meet um, meet somewhere. I'm a problem solving kind of person. So it made sense that I would be attracted to mm. that. However, I like to, to describe my work as um, having a CBT framework and that I'm often thinking about how, and I'll explain this in a minute, thoughts and behaviors impact our experience. Um, but I'm very willing to uh, do some talk therapy with the idea that we're going to be circling around thoughts and behavior. So I guess I don't like to think about it very rigid. There are, and this might be for some people, but there are clinics that are super, super CBT rigid. So that means you have, I was trained in one of these 12 sessions, you have homework, you have that schedule, you don't get off the routine. And that works for some people. In my practice, we're a little bit more flexible with the overall framework of CBT. I just find that that works better for for problems um, in real life. And it also sounds like what you're saying is it can be particular to the child, that there might be a child that responds to, to saying like, it's 12 sessions, these are the exercises, right? Definitely, definitely. And I'll just say, just as a PSA, there are two disorders that are really, really important to get treat- CBT treatment for, which is OCD and mm-hmm. panic disorder with agoraphobia. Those are ones that just talk therapy really has trouble addressing fully. So I just like to kind of give out, there's, there's so much data that those in particular can really be helped with CBT. So if a kid came in with that, we absolutely would do cognitive behavioral therapy before expanding. Um, but, is yeah. panic disorder agoraphobia is they won't leave the house? Yeah, it's a great question. So actually that's how, that's what I think maybe that's how it's been understood in popular culture. So panic disorder is, so you can have a panic attack because you're afraid of a cat. So when you see a cat, you have a panic attack. That is an anxiety attack in response to a stimulus. Panic disorder starts when people have out of the blue, a sudden rush of fear and discomfort, and they don't know what caused it. And so two things happen. Usually you'll look and think, oh, um, am I having a heart attack? Did I not eat enough? You start looking inward to think, oh, there must be something happening with me that caused me to have this. Or you look outward and you think, oh, I'm on the subway. I must feel like this because I'm on the subway. So then the agoraphobia refers to places that you avoid because you're afraid you're going to have one of those. So most people in New York City who have panic disorder, agoraphobia, avoid subways, elevators, airplanes, not because they're going to crash, but because of the fear that if you felt that feeling, you couldn't get out or get help. That makes sense. So- Talk about CBT then in relationship to OCD. So that seems like a pragmatic way to like, how would you use it? I mean, I'm sure you could talk about it for like four hours, but generally speaking, just so parents who might not understand what CBT is, um, like how would you use, what is it in relationship to something like OCD? Yeah. It, is it all right with you if I give it you example as related to panic disorder? It's a little. Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah, 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 of course. Sure. Okay. Great. Um, OCD has its own kind of specific piece and because the thoughts are part of it, it's a little harder to explain. So let me just explain what CBT is first. So CBT um, is a treatment that believes and addresses, I should say, 
um, most thoughts, which is the C part. So the automatic habitual thoughts that um, we don't even notice we're having that just happen habitually. Um, and then the behaviors that we engage in as well. And that those thoughts and those behaviors kind of feed each other and that they make the situation more challenging for you. Mm-hmm. So for example, my favorite you know, example of um, how you identify a thought would be something we can all relate to. So you're walking in the woods, maybe, I mean, you know, New Yorkers, you take Metro North, you go out to the woods <laughs> and you're walking in the woods and you hear a crack of a stick and you have that automatic moment where you can ask, you can attribute what you think is happening. So one thought is, that was a stick that I just stepped on. It just cracked. Mm -hmm. The other one could be, that's a bear. I better watch out. I'd hate bears and I'm terrified. Okay. Right? The third could be, I just read on social media that there was an escape of someone from a criminal (laughs) facility and they're... And you can imagine how each of those scenarios that you think, they're just thoughts, right? It's the same stimulus would cause a hugely different experience for you. Mm -hmm. So the person who's had one panic attack on the subway is about to get on the subway and thinks, I can't go on that subway because I always have panic attacks on the subway. So as cognitive behavioral therapists, we're always listening to to the thought so we can what we do is kind of challenge it or be curious about it. I like to say, so I, and let's say a person says, I always have a panic attack. We love the word always. We stop there and we say, Ooh, okay, let's do some math. So you live in New York. How many times do you think you've been on the, on a subway? It's super fun. Cause they're like, you know, 27,000 times. Right. So you, right. you know, so you write a, a fraction. That's the denominator. And how many times have you had the panic attack on the, one. Okay. So let's get out our calculator and we'll even do the calculations and the kids like to do this. And you'll see it's, you know, 0.07% likelihood that I'm going to have a panic attack. Okay. So it's not definitely not going to happen. Cause that's what a lot of people think, like just positive thinking, it's not going to happen. Like, just let it go. It might happen, right. but it's a very small probability. So do you want to let that probability, we say to the teens, like push you around? Like, do you want that to be what's, what's um, dictating what you're doing? So that's, that's one cognitive strategy. And is it literally like getting them to stop And it's about thought processes, right? So you're working with the child to be able to say like, okay, in this moment, you need to stop and have a conversation with yourself already somewhat almost like to check in and say, I mean, I'm thinking of it just how you said, because in their mind, they literally say to you every time I've gotten on the subway, or I always have a panic attack on the subway that you literally have to stop the thought process of, okay, wait a second. So you just said this. So let's think about it. Is that true? Have you had a panic attack? And, and is that in practice that they can start? And I'm just trying to piece it together from what yeah. you're saying is that you're trying to provide them with tools that is a literal stopping of the their thought process. So they can more they have more capacity to deal with these things in the moment. Yeah, such a good question. I mean, we we start with it's really a slow process. I mean, I just said it really fast, right? So we start with just identifying thoughts the first week. So they're just at, jotting down their thoughts and start trying to get into the practice. But absolutely, it CBT is a moment to moment in in vivo experience of telling yourself something different and then gathering evidence. We talk about it a lot as like an experiment, gathering evidence when you get off the train of what did happen. Okay. Right. But what would I say to myself who said I always, 
how does that change it? So it's kind of con- it, like, you know, how the, it's always a null hypothesis and you're looking for data to challenge it same way. Mm-hmm. And right. so, yes, you are eventually. And then again, what I talked earlier about generalizing, we might start with just the subway, but it might later get to, oh, that person didn't want to sit with me at lunch. They must hate me. Huh. Oh, okay, I'm I noticing see. a thought, right? That right. If someone doesn't sit with me at lunch, they might hate me. Have I not sat with people at lunch? Yeah. Is it, I, did I hate them? No. Right. So you start really challenging all the thoughts. So it really helps mm. them start getting, getting aware of these assumptions and challenging them. That's the thought part. I do want to ask you something, Julie, but before I do, I just, I feel like that's something that could potentially take a long time, right? Like this, this idea that, you know, like a, a, a child can't come in and in two sessions, you're like, okay, you stop yourself and you question it and you think about it. Like how long, and it probably depends on the child, but to get that sort of in practice and get them used to it to a point that's helpful, yeah. can it happen quickly? Does it take a year? Like, can I, can I, do you not, do you have anxiety, Greg? Oh yeah. I've struggled with anxiety. Yeah. Okay. Because I was, I, I'm only asking you that out. I was just asking because I think it's interesting because people who've had the same ruminative thoughts, they know their thoughts pretty quickly. Like I just, you know what I mean? Like I, I think it doesn't take that long to get them there because they've had them all the time. It's just getting the awareness of it. Does that make sense? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Right. Like you I guess even though, <laughs> even though I've had the awareness to me, it's like, and it, maybe this is what you're saying too. It's like, it's an ongoing struggle. It's not like I've solved it. The waking up <laughs> at three in the morning and ruminating, but I've also had it for a long time. So I have been able, I mean, I haven't done CBT, but uh, either through my own therapy to be like, okay, how do I, how do I, kind of handle this in a better way and what tools can I use for myself that I've learned as kind of coping mechanisms for it. And I guess that is the exactly. idea a little bit. Okay. Exactly. It's not about banishing it completely. And we can talk about how parents can help, but it's about how to approach because we'll constantly have automatic thoughts, right? Like I could be sitting here and thinking right now, like I probably shouldn't have asked Greg that question. And then I can think to myself, <laughs> It's okay to ask questions. It's okay to make mistakes. Greg, right. Greg's been asked a lot of questions. Maybe it wasn't a mistake. Whatever it is, like constantly, even as right, grown sure, up, sure. Right. So yeah, it's just an active pro- practice, I think. Julie, I'm wondering because I I know you understand what CBT is. So in your practice, if you're working with a parent who has a child that's struggling, when do you know? Do you know? Like, while this might be a time to refer them to someone like. Uh, Elizabeth, like what's your experience with that? I mean, I, because I only work with parents and I, what I do is I listen to the parents' stories and I give the parents techniques and tools to change the situation. So when I think about like what Elizabeth's talking about, I talk to parents about what I call the think, feel, do cycle. So something happens, right? And we have feelings about what happened. And then based on those feelings, we change, you know, that affects our behavior, which affects the next circumstance. But the piece that people leave out is that we don't have feelings about something that happened. We have thoughts about Mm. whatever happened. So there's a missing piece in this cycle that I encourage parents to look at for themselves, first and foremost, right? And then, and then, so, so for example, maybe their kid is, maybe their kid is ruminating about something and the parent's feeling is 
frustration and anger and, you know, they feel put out. So I encourage the parent to work backwards and say, well, what thought is causing that? Um, So that the parent can then identify, you know, well, maybe the thought is, well, here they go again. I don't know what to do about this. And that causes that feeling of discomfort for the parent. And then the parent acts on that. And I talk about there being two windows of opportunity to change this cycle. One is by no matter how, what you think and how you feel, you change your behavior, right? That's a e- pretty easy one for parents mm-hmm. to l- lock into um, because we do it with techniques. You know, I give them techniques. The other one, though, is changing what your thoughts are. So to have a more empathetic thought about how a child might be struggling with something leads you to behave in a way that's probably more constructive mm-hmm. um, so that the child can then make changes. Um, I don't know if I answered your question. Well, no, and, and I think that <laughs> sounds a little bit like CBT, like you're asking the parent to catch themselves almost in the moment of response to a situation with their child. And if it's been destructive, like you said, like, can they catch themselves in the moment and say, okay, take a deep breath. Can I come at this with a more empathetic curiosity, I guess. Right. right? Yes. And then now I, I, I remembered your specific question, um, which is, uh, when do I tell parents to, you know, that their kid may need more, uh, you know, a, a professional, to step in as opposed to just the parents. And the answer to that is when I see that parents have a good handle on their own think, feel, do cycles, and they're able to change their thoughts and they're able to change the behaviors, but it's not changing the child's behavior. Then I say, you know, this is, this is past the point of, of you being able to do this yourself. And, you know, and you might want to look into a therapeutic you know, environment for your, for your kid, because, you know, there are things that as parents, we can't handle, you know, I've, for example, I've had parents whose kids have OCD and I'm like, that's beyond your ability to, to handle. It's beyond Mm -hmm. the techniques that I can offer you. Your kid needs help, you know, similarly to if your kid had, has diabetes, you can't do anything about that as the parent. Right. You've got to get a medical professional in to, you know, to address that situation. So there are certain things that it, you know, if I see a parent has really, really tried to change mm-hmm. their techniques, to change their behavior, to change their thoughts, to be more empathetic, and the kid isn't changing, then I'm like, you need Elizabeth. Right. Well, yeah, and I'm. <laughs> And I, I see you nodding, Elizabeth. I, I, can you just speak to that a little bit too? And we will talk to, I, I, afterwards. Let's talk a little bit about what maybe what a parent can do on their own. But how should a parent determine? It, it, and, and I know it's probably some of the things Julie just said, but would you add anything to that? Is it when it's something that's chronic? Like, when do you think it makes sense for someone to seek out more specifically professional help, like working with someone like you? Yeah, I mean, I think that what Julie said is absolutely right, that once the parents are aware of the possible ways that they're contributing or um, unintentionally reinforcing some of the behavior, for example, a kid who asks for a lot of reassurance that goes along with generalized anxiety disorder, 
Um, are you sure I'm going to be okay? Are you sure I'm going to be okay? Are you kind of constantly asking for reassurance? Parents who love their kids naturally say, yes, honey, you're going to be okay. You're going to be okay. And then right. five minutes later, they come back and ask it again because it becomes a, you know, a, um, basically a compulsive behavior. And so let's say a parent understands, okay, I'm not going to be reassuring them anymore. I'm going to say, I love you. We've talked about this. Let's go take, what, what can we use in your toolbox? You know, kind of guide them to do something else besides reassurance. And if they've done that and they're still symptomatic, then I think there needs to be an outside intervention. And this is, and you know, look, I was thinking earlier, you know, sometimes also, I wonder what Julie, what you think about this, you know, depending on the relationship between the teen and the, and the parent, um, the kids don't want to hear the parents helping them with cognitive restructuring. You know, sometimes it just can be helpful for it to be uh, an outside person. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that makes a lot of, yeah, totally. Like I, we've said that to, you know, you can say that to teachers or coaches, like, will you say that to them? Because <laughs> if I say that to them, it doesn't matter and they won't hear it. They exactly. might actually do it. Exactly. exactly. And Greg, there was something you said earlier that I, I wanted to, I think you were bringing up a really important point that I hadn't said, which is that a, another big piece of CBT that doesn't, isn't part of the letters is about becoming more mindful or more aware of your thoughts. And I think mm-hmm. that what you were touching on before is that we do teach kids how to do that, but that in and of itself, you're absolutely right is a process of becoming aware. The good news is their brains are much better at it than all of us who've been not doing it for years. So we right. can do them a little bit faster, but the first step is exactly what you're saying, just kind of becoming aware through mindfulness. And so CBT also does involve um, doing mindfulness techniques as well. So if someone, what are, what are some of the things that, well, certainly, I guess I would ask, first of all, is what is the presentation maybe in a house that a parent should go like, okay, you know, in terms of whether it's anxiety or depression, I mean, we've talked about this a little bit, and I guess some of this is is obvious, but uh, is there anything that presents for you that a parent can then be like, okay, there's something going on here? And then are there things outside of literally taking to see someone like you that parents can do on their own? And I, you can both speak to that. Um, Elizabeth, do you have any thoughts about that idea? Yeah. I mean, I guess I would say, you know, it's so hard being a parent because, you know, you usually have an N of one or maybe two or maybe three, you know, you don't know, you don't get to see the whole class. So you don't know if this is quote unquote, you know, developmentally appropriate. And so it can be really hard to know, um, is this, especially with, come on, we live in New York, you know, especially like high pressure, you know, it's like my kids freaking out about school. Like, isn't that what they're supposed to be doing? You know, how do you know? So yeah, yeah. to parents, like, it's really, really hard and kind of trust your instinct about it. Like if, if, if a kid, you know, kids are supposed to be generally having fun and enjoying their lives and doing a number of different things and have the ability to bounce back. So if you're noticing things like a lot of rigidity, um, I mean, technically to be diagnosed with a disorder, you have to be interfering and distressing. You need to have both of those things. So that's a, something parents can think about. You know, is it is it interfering and then is it distressing to the to the child? Um, and I would really say trust yourself about it. And you, because usually Julie can speak to this too. People come to me and they think oh, I've been thinking about doing this for years. I mean, they come to oh, me oh, down right. the road. So you know, trust yourself around it. Julie, what do you right. think? Oh yeah, I think a hundred percent, Elizabeth. I think that you know, parents often have the radar, 
right? That says, I don't know, this doesn't seem like it's typical. And, you know, and if you think that to yourself, then, you know, find out, you know, do do an investigation, reach out to a therapist, say, you know, or a counselor, you know, and say, do you, do you think this is typical? You can even do that with your friends. You know, if you have friends who have kids who are the same age as yours, you can say, are you seeing this? Is this a typical thing? Or am I, you know, is there something off? Cause it feels off to me. Um, cause you know, helping get kids get comfortable and helping kids with their own feelings and helping kids become resilient. I see that as like the main job of parents because if you if you aren't comfortable in yourself and if you aren't comfortable with feelings even uncomfortable feelings you know everybody has comfortable and uncomfortable feelings it's normal right, right. so we have to be able to say to ourselves when an uncomfortable feeling comes up oh yeah i've had this feeling before well what are the strategies that i use to get through it do i even need to get used to strategies or you know, is it just going to fade? What has it done in the past? You know, that's real resilience when we when we are capable of doing that. A, a lot of parents don't have that capacity. And then I think it's really important for parents to think ahead to their main goal being, how do we create a, a, an adult, a, a human being in the end who's resilient and comfortable with their feelings? Yeah. I guess I want to say also, just because we're in New York, you know, stress, teenagers should not feel so much stress. <laughs> I agree. You know, I, I mean, they just, so they're like, oh, aren't all teenagers, no, like, right. all, all aren't all, you know, aren't all, don't all teenagers feel sad and unhappy? No. Right. You know, like someone said yes. to me, came to me and was like, oh, my kid, you know, she cries every, that's not what people should, right? Mm -mm. So I think there's also, you know, look into it. I love the idea, Julie, of talking to people, you know, it also brings to mind, you know, this is why it's so great. You have your podcast, you know, we're meant to be living intergenerationally. I'm meant to yes. be living there with Julie where she says, Oh, I remember when your kid, my kid did this and we needed that, you know, we just, we don't have that kind of community and that would help us, you know, have a middle ground from home to their, to directly to therapists. Cause I think a lot of parents are like, I don't want to send them. And it's like, you're right. There's supposed to be this middle place and we're missing it in our culture. I think. Yes, I completely agree. And I think, you know, speaking to the idea of living in a, you know, a big city like New York, and I'm sure that this occurs in other big cities too. There's a lot of academic stress, you know, yeah. it's, and parents, you know, their kid has to be a member of the travel soccer team and the, and the basketball team and the, you know, has to be in a pre-professional dance program. And then they have to get, you know, they have to keep their GPA at a 4.0 because otherwise they won't get into a good college. And that starts in preschool and that's insane. Yeah. And kids, kids wind up feeling like, why am I just who I am? Not enough. Exactly. Why am I not enough? And so many clients, this goes to what you're mm. Greg, about how to help parents. So many parents say to us, I don't know where these kids get all this stress. I don't know. <laughs> I've never said one thing to them about their yeah. schoolwork, but they're so focused on their schoolwork. And so I say to parents, where to start? 
look at your beautiful, wonderful selves and ask yourself, make a fear inventory, make a fear list of all the things you're afraid of. Get really clear on your stuff because kids are feeling that all over, even if you never say it. And so you can do so much work by looking at yourself and your own fears and challenging them a bit. I like that a lot, Elizabeth, that idea of kind of doing a fear inventory and, you know, what am I af afraid of? You know, what is the story I'm telling myself? Right. Because I think a lot of parents would say, myself included, like, well, I'm afraid I could hear myself saying, well, I'm afraid she's not going to get into a good college. And then the minute I say it, I think, no, I'm not. Like, but I don't, I don't say it. I keep telling myself I shouldn't be that, or I'm not that. I don't own that that's a fear. So if you just mm -hmm. name it, you can challenge it and then hopefully release it and not put it on them. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Julie, I feel like we, you talk about, and we talk about on the episode a lot is like parents checking in with themselves first and kind of figuring out their own stuff. I mean, I will say like the academic piece, I do feel like parents can do that, but kids do it to themselves. I mean, I just, my daughter just is now a freshman in college, but that process was horrendous. And a lot of it was because of her own pressure she put on herself to check all the boxes. And I think that college structure is kind of broken. So that's part of it. I mean, I do want to just speak to this anecdotally because of what you guys said. I love this idea of asking, it's okay to ask the questions and it doesn't mean you will, will even do it like, and to trust your instincts. So one of my children had some struggles with impulsivity, ADD. We didn't really know that, but we had some instinct, like there's something going on here. And in middle school, we were with just the counselor at the school. And I think, which was a regular meeting. And I think both my wife and I did finally say like, Hey, um, you know, this comes up, you know, should we consider medication? And he immediately was like, yes, you should. And it was only because and, and again, I want to say that doesn't mean like, OK, now your child's on medication for 10 years. But the idea is like, hey, take this one step at a time. Does this make sense? Why don't we try it? And for our child, it actually was so helpful. But it took us kind of knowing intuitively like this is an ongoing struggle here. Exactly. They are calling out in class. They are, you know. And I think one of the things my experience, I also have a child who has ADHD, I have two, um, was that. I thought the teacher, and I'm a psychologist, I thought the teachers were going to tell me. I thought someone else was going to tell me, or the pediatrician. And I didn't, I mean, this goes to my own stuff that I work on every day, but, but trusting myself, that I saw something that was going on. And then I think parents also um, start doubting themselves, but totally trust yourself. You're the expert. I mean, the kid's the expert on themselves, but second to that is you. Right. Yeah. And, and, and asking the question or even having one meeting with a professional doesn't mean you're locked into 10 years of therapy, but you, I think it's just important to ask those questions. So we only have a couple minutes left. So there were two last things I wanted to yeah. talk about. Um, can we talk about medication a little bit? Like, do you use that in concert with CBT? Like, how do you feel about, I'm assuming you feel it that in circumstances, uh, antidepressants, anti-anxiety medication can be helpful. Mm -hmm. So as a psychologist, I personally can't prescribe, at least here in New York state, but many of our clients are on medication and do CBT. In fact, research, if you look at the research studies, the people who have the best long-term effects are the ones who are on a combination of cognitive behavioral therapy and medication, even if they went off the medication after the initial trial of 12 weeks. So there is something I, I've seen I've certainly had many clients who I'm ready to do CBT with 
and they are too depressed or too anxious to be able to actually use any of the tools. Mm -hmm. So we, I explain that we kind of need them to be on the medication so they can really get engaged in the work and then maybe get off the medication. But we see it absolutely as a, mm -hmm. another tool without any stigma. Um, and more and more, um, I feel like, as I said earlier, people are, are a little bit more open to it than they, they were a few years ago. Yeah. Great. What I see in my uh, practice is that there's cert a, still a certain um, population of parents who are like, I don't want my kid on medication. I mean, just kind of a blanket statement there. Yeah. And I try to explain it to them like, you know, if your child has trouble seeing the board at the front of the classroom, you're not going to hesitate to get them a prescription for glasses, right? Um, it's it's very similar. If your ch child is struggling so much with whatever's going on internally, the anxiety or depression or OCD or whatever, you know, why are you hesitating to give them a leg up so that they can, as Elizabeth said, do the work? You know, if they're drowning, they can't swim to shore. Exactly. medication simply brings up the ocean floor so that they can stand. They still have to do the work, but they're no longer struggling just to stay afloat. That's great. And I would suggest for parents such as, I love that metaphor. You're so good at metaphors, Julie. I love it. <laughs> I, I would also say if the parents have that fear, do a fear inventory on that. What are you so afraid of? Let's look at yeah. the, one of the cognitive strategies is what's, uh, what's the worst case scenario? So what are you most afraid of? And many people say they're going to become drug addicts. Oh, okay. Well, let me explain to you how these drugs work. They're not addictive, yeah. you know, so you can really right. do some work around it. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. I love that. Um, so we end each episode and Julie, I'm going to ask you to do this this time too. I, we, you know, we have this kind of expansive conversation and I guess if a parent listened to this episode and then, you know, went on with their day for both of you, and we'll start with Julie, if there's, if there was one thing, one idea around this topic, you would maybe want them to hold on to. Uh, if you can maybe do one, what what would it be? Um, I guess there's so many. <laughs> there's always yeah, so there's, many, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, I guess, as Elizabeth has said, trust your instinct if you think there's something that your child is struggling with that's too much for them to handle. Don't let stigmas around seeking help right? Prevent you from noticing whatever they're struggling with. Because there are cases where if you, if you notice, but don't act, it can be too late. And so I think, you know, we have an obligation as parents to say, I don't know, you know, let me, let me figure this out. And whether that means researching on your own, I mean, there's a lot of online resources now for parents. So it doesn't mean spending money necessarily, but I think trust that gut instinct. And if you think your child is struggling and, and needs help, either you get the help and try to help them or they, they need to get the help. You need to get them help. Elizabeth. I'm so glad Julie said that. I was going to say that. So that gives me a whole other one to do. <laughs> um, okay. So mine, mine is that similarly what Julie's saying about trust yourself is about really the kids should not really be struggling as much as they might be. And that just because you had it really hard 
And just because you might have also been really afraid doesn't mean that what you're seeing should just be accepted for them. That kids and people really deserve to have a full, vibrant, joyful life. And we all have the right to have that. And so um, if your kid isn't having that, there's nothing, as Julie said, there's nothing wrong with it. You haven't done anything wrong, but there could be some tools to help them move through. And I think it's so important that also by saying, hey, you know, this is a, you know, feelings doctor or someone who could help you a little bit and give you some tools is so important because they go to college, like your kids, like, you know, eventually we're all going to need something. So, you know, how do, what are they learning about when things get hard? How do people around me respond? Do we say, oh, that's how everyone is, or that's how life, or do we say maybe things could be a little better? Let's, let's, let's try to find that. So that's what I wanted to say. Yeah. That's a great way to end. Um, Elizabeth, thank you for being here. Uh, again, our, our guest today is Dr. Elizabeth Cohen. Uh, you're in practice. I mean, if someone who listens to this episode wants to find you, what is the best way to do that? Yeah. So I run the practice called the Center for CBT in New York City, and I'll send you the link. Okay, great. And we'll Bad put that in the show notes. And great. Elizabeth, thank you again. We really appreciate it. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to the Parenting Horizons podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please share with your family and friends. And if you'd like to hear more about Julie's work, join one of her parenting groups, or see about individual counseling, please visit ParentingHorizons.com. Or you can email Julie at Julie.Ross at ParentingHorizons.com. We'll see you next time.